Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016. We'll be doing our light episode today, and we'll be listening to a good lecture by Phil Johnson on, well, proof for the existence of God. Good apologetic topic, by the way. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, the Word is instead. And um, this is about learning biblical discernment because Jesus himself warns us that in the last days there will be a lot of false teachers and false prophets coming in his name who are deceiving people and leading them astray. And so we're trying to equip you to inoculate you and help you so that you are not deceived and led astray. Now, what we're going to do today, today, a uh, light episode, so it's panning out to be something like a normal week, although uh, the last episode for this week will be tomorrow on Thursday. There will not be a new episode on Friday, um, and then I'll be out until next Thursday. I'm doing a lot of traveling this uh, this month. Anyway, um, today we're going to be listening to a good sermon by Phil Johnson. He's uh, t- taking on the topic of proof for the existence of God And this is one of those topics that we need to go through from time to time. And uh, the fact that he's a presuppositionalist actually is uh, quite beneficial because I've come to believe that that's the presuppositions of presuppositionalism when it comes to atheism, spot on and biblically correct. Anyway, so here's Phil Johnson and his sermon on proof for the existence of God. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But what if such a fool demands proof? Not long ago, uh, I preached a message, you'll remember this, from Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. And when the guys who record and post our material online asked me to give it a title, I called it, Why I Don't Believe in Atheists. Because that text, Romans 1, basically says there is no such thing as an honest atheist. 
And, uh, you know, there are a lot of benighted fools whose own unbelief is the very thing that makes them foolish, but they deny God's existence not because they have data to do that or because it makes sense to do that, uh, but because they suppress the truth. It's not that they lack the sufficient data either. They know the truth, they suppress it, and Scripture is very clear about that. Here's that passage, Romans 1, verses 18 through 22. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And that is the consistent testimony of Scripture. People who doubt or deny the existence of God are fools. That's the biblical word for that way of thinking. And this morning, I want to talk about God's existence and how we can be sure of it. There are, of course, several classical rational arguments for God's existence, and I want us to discuss what they are, and then let's see how the Bible addresses the issue of proving that God exists. What does the Bible say about this? But first, let's look at the rational arguments. This, by the way, is the first and most basic problem of apologetics. Most of you, I think, are familiar with that expression, apologetics. It has nothing to do whatsoever with, you know, making apologies to your wife or to anyone else, but that's a theological term that speaks of giving a reasoned defense of the faith. And it comes from 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, "...in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect." And the Greek word Peter uses for that phrase, to give a defense is apologia. It's the same word from which we get our English word, apology. But Peter isn't talking about making apologies. He's talking about defending the faith. And that's what the word apologetics means, the defense of the faith. It's the discipline of making a reasoned defense of the faith, of being prepared to say why you believe. And If you do any evangelism or if you even share the gospel with your neighbors, you need to be prepared to give a basic defense of the faith. Seminary students, most of them are gone for the summer, which is okay. The guys who are here are probably anticipating that I'm going to have to deal with the two main competing beliefs about how Christians should defend the faith, because there are two dominant ideas about what kind of arguments Christians should use in the defense of the faith, and these these two philosophies are so much in disagreement that sometimes it makes for, you know, really lively arguments. On the one side, you have evidentialists who basically suggest that the way to convince unbelievers of the truth of the gospel is to cite objective evidence of the truth of the gospel. R.C. Sproul is an evidentialist. Josh McDowell is an evidentialist, and that's why His famous book is titled, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That's one approach to apologetics. The other side is known as presuppositionalism, and I'm a presuppositionalist. It's harder to say, but actually easier to do. I'm a presuppositionalist, and so is John MacArthur and most of the 
men who teach apologetics at the master's college and seminary. The best known and most influential presuppositionalist was Cornelius Van Til. He was a Dutch Reformed writer and a philosopher and theologian who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for a large chunk of the 20th century. And presuppositionalists say that you can't argue someone into the faith by showing them evidence. Instead, the best way to defend Christianity and the truth of the Scripture is to assume or presuppose the truth of Scripture and then use that to show how the truth of Scripture unravels and exposes every other conceivable worldview. And you can make an impressively strong defense of the truth of Scripture by that method. You can use the Bible to dismantle any secular worldview and show why the belief systems or maybe unbelief systems that atheists and non-Christians adopt are completely untenable. They're foolish, as Scripture says. And if you want to hear this in action, look for the recordings. I think you can download this freely online of a debate that was done maybe about 20 years ago between Greg Bonson, who was a presuppositionalist, and Dr. Gordon Stein, who was an atheist. And Bonson used a, a simple presuppositional argument that had Stein, who was supposedly some, you know, very high-powered atheist, sort of gasping for air before this debate was over. There are also a lot of YouTube videos demonstrating presuppositional defense of the faith. My favorite ones are by an acquaintance and friend of mine, Cy Ten Bruggenkate. I think that's a Dutch name, but he's Canadian. Cy, S-Y-E. Just put that in, in Google at YouTube and look for apologetics, and his videos will come up. Watch his videos, and you'll see, I think, it's not particularly hard to make the presuppositionalist argument. You you don't have to be a genius or a philosopher, because it's ultimately a biblical argument, and it's effective in showing the foolishness of the non-Christian worldview, any non-Christian worldview. Anyway, as I said, I'm a presuppositionalist, and I'm not going to try to give you a complete overview and defense of the presuppositional apologetic method in an hour. In fact, I'm going to set that whole issue aside. I simply couldn't do that subject in that amount of time. I think Fred Butler also has tapes on this that uh, you could get and listen to. But for the moment, let's leave aside the underlying philosophical issues about apologetics and just talk about the various ways Christians throughout history have made arguments for the existence of God. And first, a warning. Don't get swept up in these classic arguments for God's existence. It's good to know what they are, and occasionally you will find them useful to combat error or ignorance. But here's my word of caution. Don't build your evangelistic strategy on philosophical and rational arguments. Again, you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. And God has not called us to impress the world with heady philosophical arguments. And and how you do apologetics is ultimately not one-tenth as important as how you preach the gospel. And I frankly think that when people get too caught up in making a rational defense of the faith, that's often more of a hindrance than a help to evangelism. Because You can't argue people into the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul wrote, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's 1 Corinthians 1.21. The gospel, not our rational arguments, but the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. We do need to be ready to give an answer to people who ask 
why we believe, but don't feel like you need to limit that answer to rational and philosophical arguments. You, you don't have to overcome someone's intellectual resistance to the truth before the Word of God can have an impact. Remember, we saw this when we studied Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God is itself is living and powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the whole point of that text is that God's Word is what the Spirit uses to convict people, not our cleverness. And Paul described his own ministry to the Corinthians. Their society, their whole the whole of Greek society was in love with philosophy and human wisdom. Remember Paul said, the Greeks desire wisdom. They would have listened with great respect for hours if Paul had come into Corinth like the peripatetic philosophers, you know, kind of walking around in a flowing robe and spouting deep philosophy. And Paul would have been capable of doing that. If he wanted a hearing, that's what he could have done. But here's how Paul said he approached Corinth with the truth of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 7. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, he says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You get the point, I hope, that God's wisdom is antithetical to human wisdom. God communicates His truth to us not through human philosophy or complex abstract reasoning, but instead God has made the message so simple that in the eyes of the unbelieving world, it's foolishness. In fact, just a few verses after the passage I just read from 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because..." They're spiritually discerned. It's not because they're too complex, not because they're over his head, but because they're spiritually discerned and he has no capacity for spiritual discernment because he's an unbeliever. And still later in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, Paul adds this, "'Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God.'" For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Now, that's just a preliminary word of caution. Don't become so enamored of human wisdom and philosophy and, and complex arguments and, and scientific debates and all of that so that you lose sight of the simplicity of the message we are called to proclaim to the world. On the other hand, 1 Peter 3.15, that verse we started with, tells us that we should always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks us for a reason of the hope that is within us. And notice, Peter is not contradicting Paul here. He's not suggesting that rational arguments can persuade a person into the kingdom. 
He's simply saying that true faith is rational, not irrational. Faith is reasonable. It's not a mere feeling, faith. It's, It's not an absurd hope in some unseen delusion. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. We have sound reasons for our faith, and we need to think through what those reasons are and be ready to answer people who want to know, what are the reasons for your faith? When Paul told the Corinthians that they needed to be fools in order to be wise, he wasn't suggesting that they needed to embrace some idea that is absurd or groundless or illogical or any of that. He wasn't counseling them to abandon logic and good sense. He he was not saying that Christianity itself is unreasonable or illogical. He was calling the Corinthians to let go of the complex reasoning of worldly philosophy, this world's wisdom, and turn instead to the simple, straightforward truth of the Word of God, which is the true wisdom. And this is crucial to understand. When Paul calls the gospel foolish, he says it's foolish in the eyes of the world. He's not saying that it's nonsense. He was comparing it to the the perplexing maze of secular Greek philosophy and pointing out how comparatively simple and unsophisticated the gospel is. It's only foolish in the eyes of the worldly wise. And Paul was, and, and, and make sure you understand this, Paul was by no means belittling reason or intelligence. He wasn't arguing for something that's nonsensical, nonsensical in place of that which is sensible. He wasn't taking a anti-intellectual position. He was saying to the wise and learned philosophers who were so influential in the Greek and Roman society, come down out of the clouds. God's truth, which is truly the most profound truth in all the universe, is so simple that a child can get it. And so my plan this morning is to try to give you these arguments, classical arguments for God, yet stay out of the deep end of the philosophical swimming pool. You may have heard the story of Robert Ingersoll. He was a notorious atheist, who, uh, an American guy, who made the rounds really in, in America and England, challenging God in 19th century America, back in the 1800s, when it really wasn't that popular to be a loudmouthed atheist. But he was the Richard Dawkins of his day. He was, he was a brash, obnoxious, extremely arrogant but really good speaker, and one day at a lecture, he challenged God to strike him dead. He told his audience, according to the Bible, God has struck dead men for blasphemy. I'm going to blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike me dead and damn my soul. He makes this announcement, and he pulled out his watch and stood there in absolute silence, and one minute went by, and then two. Then the audience grew restless. Three minutes passed, total silence. A woman fainted. At four minutes, Ingersoll himself began to sneer in contempt, and when the clock reached five minutes, he snapped the watch shut, put it in his pocket, and said, you see, there is no God. Otherwise, he would have taken me at my word. And at the time, someone reported that incident to Joseph Parker. He was, at the time, London's second best-known preacher after Spurgeon and asked Joseph Parker what he thought of that. Parker said, did this American gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? (laughs) Now, 
Atheism has gained, obviously, a lot of ground in America since Robert Ingersoll's time. I, I recently read an account of the first convention of American atheists in Austin, Texas. That was the organization Madeline Murray O'Hare founded. If you're from my generation, you will remember her. She was, for a while, kind of a pop icon, a really obnoxious and not particularly attractive woman. And uh, she was a outspoken and angry atheist, and, and so she organized this convention. Twelve people showed up for the national convention, and two of them hid under the table when the news media arrived and refused to come out until the cameras left the room. That's how atheism was, I think that was in the early 60s or late 1950s. And society, our society, has declined significantly since then, and the tables have turned, and now the atheist conventions are very well-attended, neatly marketed events, and the atheists are trying to get Christians to cower under the table. There's even an award they give out called the Atheist of the Year, and one year they gave it to a guy named a guy from Indiana named Lloyd Thorin, who had started, you may remember this, the first dial-an-atheist phone service. It used to be these phone things that you could dial a prayer, and he decided to start dial-an-atheist. They gave him the Atheist of the Year award. I think about all this and think, you know, it's really amazing, isn't it, that people will get so worked up about something they don't believe in, that they devote their lives and start organizations to promote what they don't believe exists. It was Haywood Brown who said, nobody talks so constantly about God as those who insist that there is no God. And you can see that. Look at the internet. There are nests of angry atheists who do nothing but obsess about the God they claim not to believe in. It used to be unusual to encounter people who would frankly admit that they don't believe in God. That's not true any longer. We probably, all of us in this room, have either neighbors or relatives or co-workers who happily self-identify as atheists. Most people, let's face it, most people in our culture are practical atheists, regardless of what they say or what kind of doctrine they give lip service to. Most people live as if they believed there was no God. So what do you say to someone who asks for proof of God's existence? How can you give them an answer for the hope that is in you? And I want to look at the arguments and proofs for God's existence in a way that I think will help you frame your thinking on this issue. The key statement in all of Scripture regarding this whole issue of God's existence is Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's basically the Bible's answer to atheism. It's foolish. That that verse, by the way, is repeated verbatim also in Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is the biblical label for the atheist, fool. The Bible assumes the existence of God, it doesn't argue the point, and that's a crucial truth. Keep it in mind, and I'll return to it later. But the point of Psalm 14.1 is this. Unbelief, not faith, but unbelief is what's irrational, foolish. The fool is not the one who believes, but the one who denies God's existence. God doesn't ask us to suspend our rational faculties in order to believe in Him. Faith, true faith, is not mindless gullibility or blind trust. Faith is actually more rational than unbelief, and I hope that'll become clear as we look at the classic arguments for God's existence, and then we'll look at 
the biblical argument for God's existence, but we'll start with the, the rational arguments. And we'll begin with three traditional philosophical arguments that attempt to prove God's existence. These arguments are so basic and so familiar that you'll find they're dealt with by most philosophers. If you ever studied philosophy, I know you've come across these arguments because even the non-Christian philosophers, philosophers take up these arguments. They're that basic. The first is the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. This argument reasons from effect to cause. The argument is basically this. Everything that exists must have a cause. And every cause is in turn caused by something else and so on back to the original cause, and that's God, the first cause. And there are several ways of framing this argument. It's, it's, uh, it's capable of, of being used in several different ways. Here's another one. The universe must have had a cause that is adequate to explain its being. I mean, even if you believe in the Big Bang, something had to cause the Big Bang. And whatever caused the universe must have been an infinitely great cause. The argument is that cause is God. Now, every three-year-old, in fact, in my family, it seems like the two-year-olds actually play with the cosmological argument. You know, daddy... How do they make paper? It's made from trees. Where do the trees come from? They grow from seeds. Where do the seeds come from? God made them. And ultimately, you get back to that point, no matter what route you take through the cycle of cause and effect. Thomas Aquinas devised several arguments for God's existence that are all basically variations of the cosmological argument. He loved this argument. One of his arguments is based on motion. His favorite, the one he's probably best known for, is based on motion. Everything that is now in motion had to be set in motion by something else, which in turn was set in motion by something else, and so on, back to the unmoved mover, and that's God, the unmoved mover. There's another variety of the same argument that's based on existence. Every being is either self-existent or it was made, and there are no other possibilities. And since all the beings we know are finite, they can't possibly be self-existent. They must have been made or caused by something. And you go back through all the antecedent causes that have brought things into existence, you ultimately arrive at the ultimate maker. That's God, the ultimate maker. Now, the cosmological argument has been attacked by philosophers since really the time of Immanuel Kant. Kant asked the same question every three-year-old ultimately asks, well, then who made God? But nobody made God. That's precisely why he is God. He's self-existent and eternally existent. And so the arguments against the cosmological argument are childish and inconclusive. I, I like the cosmological argument. I find it convincing. But... While it proves God exists, it can't prove that he's the God of the Bible or even that he's a personal God. At the end of the day, it seems to me obvious that the cosmological argument alone cannot bring someone to the true God of Scripture, and therefore it's it's limited in its usefulness. Right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, 
or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's sermon on, well, proof of the existence of God. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions. They're just so boring. Hey, do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Los Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the Biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile.
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that atheists don't exist. Because they don't. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. You get to pick your rank in our crew. And lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95. Cents a month, uh, Gunner's Mate twenty four ninety five a month, Master Gunner forty nine ninety five a month, and Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. Great way to support us, by the way. Of course, if you would like to make a one time contribution or to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button there on our website, or you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box one three three four four Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's sermon on the proof for the existence of God from Phil Johnson. Here we go. So we turn to a second argument, the teleological argument. That's T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. I'm not going to spell it again, but teleological. I know I went too fast, but you can get it on the recording. Teleological argument, actually so similar to the cosmological argument that it's easy to get them confused, but instead of arguing from effect to cause, this argument argues from design to a designer. 
the teleological argument. It, it suggests that since the universe is orderly, it must have been designed by an intelligent being. That intelligent being is God. Nature is governed by laws, and that implies the existence of a lawgiver. Our solar system is so intricately designed that if the axis of the earth was just one or two degrees off, the polar ice caps would melt, the seasons would swing wildly between fiery hot and icy cold, and the earth would be utterly uninhabitable. Everything in creation runs according to the seasons, which follow a rhythm that's established by the rising and the setting of the sun. And it is an extremely precise timetable. That kind of orderliness is, it implies intelligent design. So many factors have to be just right to allow life on earth as we know it, that it seems it could not have happened by accident. Sir Isaac Newton, who discovered many of the laws that govern gravity and the motion of planets and all that, was a committed Christian. He flirted with some doctrinal anomalies. You wouldn't want to look to him as a theologian, but he was a devoted Christian. He lived in England near the end of the Puritan era, and he was known for his faith in Christ. And Newton observed the regular motion of the planets and pointed out that the solar system itself is essentially a very precise and reliable clock. And therefore, he said, it must have had an intelligent designer. He talked about the clockwork universe. That was a term he more or less coined. And some clockmaker in that era took that idea and built a fascinating little clockwork model of the solar system. You could wind it up, and these little orbs would revolve around a model of the sun on a scale that duplicated more or less the the actual planets and showed how the solar system works. And other watchmakers copied that pattern, and, and these little clockwork models became, for a time, extremely popular. They're made out of wooden cabinets and brass, and they're, they're really quite extraordinary. They're called orreries, O-R-R-E-R-I-E-S, orreries. Look that up at Google, O-R-R-E-R-Y. I will spell that one a second time, orrery. There are lots of them still in existence. You can buy them on uh, eBay for several thousand dollars. For about $500, you can get a sort of modern version of the same kind of model. Anyway, the story is told of a Christian man who owned one of these models, and he showed it to an atheist friend, and the atheist was absolutely enthralled, and he was determined to get one like it. He thought it was a great decoration and a very interesting a sort of educational tool as well. And so he asked his Christian friend, who made this? And the man replied, well, nobody made it. It just happened. <laughs> and that was a great answer because ultimately that is precisely what atheists believe about the entire universe, which is infinitely more complex than any man-made orrery. Nobody made it, they think. It just happened. Everything and, and everything we know just sprang spontaneously out of nothing. On the face of it, that is an absurd idea. Order implies thought and purpose and design. Only intelligence can devise and design order into a system. You could take a bag of watch parts and shake it for all eternity, and a working watch will never emerge from that bag. The only way to get a watch is to have a watchmaker design and build it. And the same thing is true with the universe. It could not have happened by accident. That's the 
teleological argument. Ronald Nash, who's written some very good books on presuppositional apologetics. Ronald Nash wrote a book called Faith and Reason, and he says this, quote, Suppose the first American astronauts to walk on the moon had brought back along with the moon rocks an oblong black box that appeared from the outside to have been crafted by machines. Suppose further that when opened, the box contained the workings of a camera. It had parts that functioned like a lens and a shutter and other components of a camera. Obviously, he says, such an object would excite enormous and justifiable curiosity about how it came to be. He said, it's hard to imagine any skeptics gaining respect by maintaining that the principle of sufficient reason did not apply to such an object. Equally absurd, he said, would be efforts to explain the box in terms of chance or natural forces. The very nature of the object pointed to its having been made by an intelligent being. Then Nash says, the human mind properly balks at the suggestion that a camera-like object was produced by chance, by natural forces. But then how much more should we reject claims that something far more intricate, such as the human eye, resulted from anything less than intelligent, an intelligent being? That, to me, is a, a conclusive argument. It's, it's, and it's obvious, isn't it, to any rational mind that it's foolishness to claim that something as complex as the human eye could spontaneously come out by chance from natural forces without any intelligence behind it. Now, I know you've heard of David Hume, the famous philosopher who lived at the beginning of the so-called Enlightenment era. Hume took delight in, he was an atheist, and took delight in trying to debunk the classic arguments for God. And he said if the teleological argument proves anything, it just proves that God isn't a very good designer. Otherwise, why would he have designed a universe with so much pain and suffering? And that shows the fallacy of a merely rational argument. Apart from divine revelation and the truth of Scripture, Hume's view, his argument against the teleological argument, might pose a serious problem. But if you accept Scripture, Hume's argument really makes no challenge. Scripture explains why there's pain and suffering in the universe. You know, Darwin's evolutionary theory is an attempt to evade the teleological argument. It's just a complex answer to the teleological argument. Evolutionists believe that given an infinite amount of time and an infinite variety of possibilities, a world like ours could evolve into an orderly system. That's their whole claim. And the problem with that view is that Science itself argues otherwise. The second law of thermodynamics, which defines the property of entropy, says this, that every isolated system moves from order to disorder, not vice versa. Things run down. This is the very same law of physics that renders perpetual motion impossible. It proves that nature prefers disorder and chaos. It means that an evolving system, apart from the influence of a, an intelligent force, any evolving system will degenerate from order to confusion, not vice versa. Motion will eventually succumb to inertia. Motion doesn't happen spontaneously. So the teleological argument has one big advantage over the cosmological argument. It proves that God is a personal being or at least an intelligent being. 
but it still doesn't prove the God of the Bible. In fact, many Muslim scholars make liberal use of the cosmological and teleological arguments. They're good arguments to prove there must be a God, but they don't point you in the direction of who is the true God. So here's a third classical argument, the ontological argument. Ontological, O-N-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L, ontological argument. And of all the major classic philosophical arguments for God, this one to me is the most interesting. And it's called the ontological argument because it has to do with the nature of being itself. Simply stated, it's this. If you can conceive of a a perfect, absolutely perfect being, he must exist because existence is one of the attributes of perfection. If he didn't exist, he wouldn't be perfect. Or to state it in a way that might be easier to grasp, God exists by definition. Self-existence is one of the defining attributes of God. You can't define him at all if he doesn't exist. Immanuel Kant, one another Enlightenment-era philosopher and a contemporary of David Hume's, who also liked to debunk the arguments for God, said that the ontological argument only proves that if there is a God, he exists. And if you don't think it through carefully, you might be tempted to conclude, well, that seems reasonable, that's right, but let's look at it a little more closely. Anselm, the great sort of medieval theologian, Anselm, gets credit for developing the ontological argument in its classical form. Here's the way he stated it. I'll quote from Anselm himself. He says, God is the greatest conceivable being. This is true by definition, because if we could conceive of something greater than God, then that would be God. So nothing greater than God can be conceived. It's greater to exist in reality than to exist in the mind. If God existed only in the mind, then something greater than him could be conceived. But God is the greatest conceivable being, hence he must exist in reality. That's a clever argument, isn't it? Or frame it another one, a a, a different way. A being whose non-existence is inconceivable is greater than a being we can conceive of as non-existent. Therefore, the greatest being we can imagine must exist. That's an argument that'll kind of turn your mind into a pretzel. And Anselm, I think, was correctly defining God as that being than which no greater can be conceived. Here's the genius of that argument. It shows why God's existence is the fundamental presupposition that underlies all human logic. It's a simple but profound argument. Now, you might ask, is any of this biblical? Well, to some degree, I think it is. In fact, when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3, the name he gave was a statement about his self-existence. I am who I am, verse 14, Exodus 3. He told Moses to tell Pharaoh, I am has sent me to you. That was the message Moses was to deliver to Pharaoh. The one who sent me is I am, the great I am. And the ontological argument is sort of built into that name. Now, I should note, there are many fine theologians whom I respect, who who would dismiss the ontological argument and say, no, that's circular reasoning. They they suggest that it makes the mistake of assuming at the outset the very thing it purports to prove. J. 
James Henry Thornwell, who was a brilliant and, and godly Presbyterian theologian in the 19th century. He'd be very well known, except, you know, his career, like a lot of Southern Presbyterians, was cut short by this civil war. But he wrote some brilliant material. He said the ontological argument ends invariably in empty abstraction. So he didn't like the argument. But in recent years, this argument has made a comeback. One recent secular writer said this about it. When you think about it, the argument is not nearly as simple-minded as it appears. Just where did you get your idea of a perfect being if you're so sure no such thing exists? And I think that writer is making a very valid point. You certainly cannot prove the non-existence of God, so why, why would you make a career out of attacking it. The ontological argument actually, I think, goes further than the other two because it reveals not only a personal intelligent being, but more specifically, a personal God who is perfect in all His attributes. And that is the God of Scripture. But this argument falls short of bringing us to the God of the Bible. So those are the rational arguments for God's existence. Those are the three main ones. There are a couple more common arguments that are a little less philosophical. Here's one, the moral argument. The moral argument can be summed up like this. Some sense of moral responsibility is inherent in the character of humanity. Every society known to man has some sense of right and wrong or good and bad, but you can't make sense of that. You can't even understand morality apart from the idea of God, because in a purely materialistic universe, Moral values make no sense. There is no accountability. There is no lawgiver. The existence of moral principles proves the existence of a lawgiver, and the lawgiver is God. In other words, we know innately guilt and responsibility. Therefore, there must be someone we are responsible to. That someone is God. That gets awfully close to the argument Romans 1 is making. So it's a strong argument, but it still doesn't ultimately compel us to faith in the God of Scripture. Here's one more classical argument for God's existence, the ethnological argument. I'm not going to spell that one. You can make it up for yourself. The ethnological argument. This bears some resemblance to the moral argument. It says, basically, all known peoples and tribes have some religious tradition, some sense of the divine. Since the phenomenon is universal... It must be part of human nature, and and if there's something in the nature of the human being that compels us to worship, that something can only be explained adequately by the existence of a real God. Now, I don't see much merit in that argument as an appeal to reason alone. I think this is the weakest of all the arguments, especially since every form of human religion is seriously erroneous. But put that argument with what Scripture tells us in Romans 1, and you do have a compelling case. That's the Romans 1, the passage that says, unbelievers know the truth, but they suppress the truth. In fact, let me read the passage one more time. Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Scripture there is making certainly an implied appeal to the cosmological and teleological arguments. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God 
or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That passage, Romans 1, explains humanity's universal fascination with religion. The knowledge of God is in some way, not in a perfect way, but to some degree, the knowledge of God is manifest within every person, but all have sinned. So they suppress and corrupt and pervert the knowledge of God. And that's why there are so many false religions in some kind of spiritual entropy. Religion always devolves and degenerates into chaos and confusion. That's true even of of true religion. If you just look at the history of the church, and there, there has never been any institution or denomination or church that has managed to stay faithful to what the Scriptures teach for longer than maybe 300 or 400 years. And that's rare. It's usually less than two generations. Organizations and institutions corrupt themselves doctrinally. Now, let's set aside the philosophical arguments and look at one other proof of God's existence. And in my view, if you want to debunk atheism, here is the ultimate argument. If you think through all the rational arguments for the existence of God, they all make valid points. They all have some validity, but in the end, what they really prove is the need for divine revelation. Because if God doesn't reveal himself, we might know that he exists, but how can we know who he is? Apart from Scripture, we would never arrive at the true God who has revealed himself to us. It's impossible to take people through a purely rational process and thereby introduce them to the true God. Without the pure truth of divine revelation, reason and our sin would conspire to lead us astray, and that's why Scripture is so important. And that fact brings us to the ultimate and only irrefutable proof of God's existence. You find it spelled out clearly in Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, Scripture says, is all the evidence you need. But you have to understand that in context, not by the popular definition of faith. When Scripture defines faith as substance and evidence, it's it's saying that true saving faith is not an ambiguous or uncertain hope, but it's a sure, God-given certainty. You have that text in Acts 16, 14, which says of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. Once the Lord opens your heart to receive the truth of His Word, that's all the proof you need. When you come to genuine faith in Christ, the search for proofs of God's existence should be over. And that says some significant things about the nature of Christian belief. First, saving faith is substantially different from other varieties of faith. You've heard people illustrate faith sometimes by saying, well, everyone has faith. You had faith when you sat down that the chair would hold you up. You had faith when you came to church today that your car would start and run long enough to get you here. And that, according to some people, is that's really all there is in to faith. But I disagree. That kind of faith might be nothing more than gullibility. Your chair might collapse. Not trying to scare any of you, but I've seen it happen, not with these chairs, but there's no absolute certainty that that chair is going to hold you up. If you sit on a 
wobbly chair and it collapses, your faith turns out to be nothing more than a mistake. Faith in Christ is not like that. Why? Well, for one thing, the object of our faith is infinitely more trustworthy. He cannot fail. He will not disappoint. He's not like a chair that might actually collapse. He's not like a car that might break down or run out of gas. But faith in Christ is different from everyday faith for an even more important reason, and it's this. The source of that faith is God Himself. Genuine faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, that text is talking about the whole package of your salvation, your regeneration, your faith, your freedom from sin, all of it is a gift from God, but includes the faith. None of us would ever turn to God in faith if He didn't sovereignly intervene. Lydia would not have believed the Lord if He hadn't opened her heart. Faith is God's gracious gift, and Jesus explicitly affirmed that truth. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father, John 6.65. Faith is also spoken of as a divine gift in Acts 3.16. Peter, you remember, had just healed a man born blame. He's at the gate of the temple, and Peter tells the crowd there, the faith This is Acts 3.16, the faith which comes through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Notice the expression he uses, the faith that comes through Jesus. Jesus is the source not only of the man's healing but of his faith. Philippians 1.29, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. It's sort of said in passing there but Paul is assuming in Philippians 1.29 that it is God who granted your faith. Romans 12.3 says God has allotted to each believer a measure of faith. And 2 Peter 1.1, Peter addresses the epistle to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, which puts saving faith in a different category from any other kind of belief. It's not a wistful longing or a blind confidence or a naive gullibility. True saving faith is a supernatural certainty. It's an understanding of spiritual realities. Back to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. You remember the unregenerate man can't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him. He goes on to say, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. So that verse says, God reveals himself and his truth to our hearts by faith. It's a supernatural transaction that unites us with Christ and establishes a personal relationship with Him. And if you have that, you have all the proof you need. If faith were merely a human decision, it wouldn't be any assurance of all at all. It might be a bad decision. If believing were just a function of the human mind, faith would be no grounds for confidence or assurance. Because the mind can be easily deceived, mistaken, deluded, misinformed. Real faith, according to those verses, is a divinely implanted assurance that rises above the natural functioning of the human mind. The human mind is blinded by sin, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. So 
as unbelievers, we would never see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We would never on our own have reached out to God in faith. You may think you would have, but that's because if you have embraced Christ by faith, it's because God drew your heart to Him. If you believe, it is because God sovereignly invaded your life and gave you a new heart of faith, certainly not because you're wiser or better than someone who doesn't believe, but our faith is the work of God in us. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And that faith, which is His gift to us, is the highest proof that the Bible is true and God is real. It's really the only proof you need. And I make that point for two reasons. If you are a non-believer who demands to be convinced rationally before you take God at His word, you're never going to have irrefutable proof of God until you turn to Him in faith. There are many arguments that show the reasonableness of believing in God, but the proof is the faith that He grants. And my prayer for you is that God will grant you such faith. Second, if you are a Christian, your search for proof of God should be over. You should be able to look at your own heart and gasp in wonder at what God has done to change it. Your heart should be new and washed and different, and different in such a way that you could not possibly take credit for the change that has taken place. And if what you see when you look within is still an evil heart of unbelief, then you're probably not a true Christian. In closing, let me reiterate something I said earlier. The Bible assumes the existence of God. It doesn't argue the point. That is to say that Scripture follows a scheme that is presuppositionalist, not evidentialist. Scripture doesn't offer us proofs and arguments for the existence of God. It begins in the very first verse, assuming the existence of God. I'll go even further. Scripture teaches that the existence of God is a self-evident truth. It requires no proof. God authenticates Himself. The only reason people reject God is because sin blinds their mind to the truth. And that's as true of the derelict who sleeps on the street as it is of a, a brilliant man who earned his highest degrees at Oxford and Cambridge, Richard Dawkins. The reason they don't believe is because sin has blinded their minds to the truth. God demands faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So God demands faith. He calls us to faith. And when He redeems a soul, He bestows faith as a divine gift. But He doesn't waste time arguing with unbelievers about His existence. He simply declares the truth and demands that we believe it. We can believe it with the perfect confidence that it is rational and reasonable, and more than that, it's true. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word does speak with authority that can only come from heaven. We thank You that You are God, and beside You there is no other. May our hearts be full of confidence in that truth. May the doubts and questions that occasionally assault us be mortified, put to death, as we study and learn and obey Your Word. Use that to
to mold us into the perfect likeness of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.